Ho, ho, ho. I'm John Miglosh for the WDMA. Let's let's watch this. This is about how they do randomization and, and do encryption in a world where, you know, you think everything's determined. Is it? Is it really? And it's a fascinating story. I think it's fascinating. The video and turn it into a stream of random, unpredictable bytes. And this unpredictable data is what we use to help create the keys that encrypt the traffic that, that flow through Cloudflare's network. This data is then fed into our data centers and then fed into the Linux kernel, which then uses it to help uh, seed random number generators that are used to generate keys. Every time that you take a picture with a camera, there's going to be some sort of static, some sort of noise. So it's not only just where the bubbles are flowing through the lava lamp, it's sort of the, uh, the state of the air, the sort of ambient light. Every tiny change uh, impacts the stream of data. A cryptographic hash function is something that we use where it, even if you have one sort of static image and one little, one little bit changes, it changes the entire stream. So uh, we use that to, to help scatter the randomness as much as possible. We also collect randomness around the world. So in our London office, we have this thing called a chaotic pendulum. It has three pieces and it's unpredictable in which way they kind of twist and turn together. We videotape that and feed it into our randomness source as well. In our Singapore office, we have a radioactive source that we use to feed into the randomness system as well. So this is not just some stunt that we, that we pulled. It's it's actually you know, being fed into our real systems. Whether anything in the world is truly random is arguably a question of philosophy and not science. Maybe everything is just complicated clockwork, but these lava lamps are so chaotic that simulating that camera shot with perfect pixel accuracy, far enough ahead to be useful while figuring out everything else those images are being put through, it's roughly the same level of difficulty as just brute forcing the encryption in the first place. And even if you could simulate all that, you'd only have one piece of the puzzle. Uh, and then Trung went over to an article he wrote in February of this year <clears throat> and talked about about people who just keep at it. And Dyson Vacuum Cleaner was one. But he said, this is, took Dyson Vacuum Cleaner 15 years to get the first, to get the real first real uh, vacuum cleaner, 5,000 prototypes to get the first marketable one, 5,000. <laughs> Something like Edison with his 10,000 tries at the light bulb um this is pointless at, at every point along here it's pointless right at every point along there it's a failure and maybe even here and here <clears throat> and all of a sudden it goes and he has another graph in here about warren buffett this is warren buffett's net worth five thousand dollars back when he was 14 years old and he just get, kept at it and now he's worth a hundred billion uh, and these are not to scale. I mean, it's not equally spread out. Um, but there's a truth in that, right? There's a truth in that. So I'm waiting for my big hit. <laughs> and I really appreciated that uh, he said, randomness is a philosophical question, right? How do you tell a fair coin, right? How do you do that? That was an old philosophical puzzle when we were studying that stuff. And the answer is, you don't know. Because there is a probability that a fair coin comes up heads X times in a row, whatever you want to fill in for X. I was in a room of about with about 200 people in it when Ed Burnett was teaching direct mail in Chicago back in the early 80s. And uh, we all took out a coin when you used to carry coins. And uh, he said, flip the coins and, uh, you know, put up your hand every time you flip heads so you know the first time everybody flipped half the room went up and then 
The next time it was about a quarter. And by the fifth one, I was the only one. It stopped working after that. I did used to practice in college flipping coin a coin the same every time. Bum, 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 bum. You know, bum, 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 bum. And you can do it. It's not that hard, in fact. It's, it's a lot easier than learning to flip a knife and catch it, which I also practiced. But the point is, is that there is a probability for a fair coin to be flipped 100 times in a row, see, right? So how do you know a fair coin? It's not so simple. And that's why yesterday, uh, yesterday, David Foley wrote in and said, because um, I was talking about a paper where they had tested something like 80,000 customers doing something. And they had another test with only a couple of thousand, like three or 4,000. And I said, you know, I, I, I wouldn't share results with, with that small a sample. Now, when I first started in modeling, um, Connie Bauer told me that she could build a, a valid customer model, segmentation model, with 50 customers. And then she said with a smile, as long as they're the right 50 customers. But that just pushes it back one more step. You know, and I tried to explain to her that with the Hudson Bay, which is what we were working on at the moment, we had, I don't remember, 14 million customers, I think, something like that. And we had 250 million orders and transactions at retail. And so it wasn't a case of sampling. Like when you sample, when they make potato chips, they sample a certain number of potatoes from each truck. And they make sure that, you know, there's an acceptable level of quality on those potatoes before they dump the truck into the hopper and make the rest of them. And uh, it's destructive. They actually push, they actually put a, like an apple core through the potatoes they're testing so that when they come through the process, they put them in the hopper with the rest of the potatoes. They know which ones are the test potatoes and they know which ones they're from, which truck they're from. And so uh, they don't sell those. They pick out those potatoes to, you know, to evaluate with the holes in them. Potato chips have holes in them then. And um, you don't sell those. So you don't want to test the whole truckload or you can't sell any, right? And you don't want to not test at all or you might sell rotten potatoes, rotten potato chips. But in, in the digital world, we can sample without penalty big, big amounts of data. And so... Um, so anyway, it's a good question whether it's random or not. I guess I've gotten off track here. I better get back. Okay, this was an interesting one. Uh, this is from Sarah Fletcher, who is the founder of Styloquin, which is a, a, a uh, Shopify app that can, can let you give your customers a, a more holistic shopping experience. And so she put posted, do... She posted, do men and women, I don't know where the title went, do men shop differently than women? That was her question for this article. And um, she said, she began with history is so littered with the bones of mis misogynistic truths that typically we either take them as gospel or take them for granted. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, data is almost irrelevant in this question because, you know, for millennia, Women didn't do much for sports and, you know, were 
were relegated to a certain to certain occupations. Of course, men were relegated too. You did what your dad did, and what he did what his dad did. So it wasn't like you know there was just it was just narrow-minded. It was just an easy way to you know it was an easy way to categorize people. And you didn't have public education, so you got educated in what your dad was doing, and you know that was it. And uh, so, um, but sometimes there's a nugget of hidden truth that's genuinely helpful. And you know, I wanted to f- dig up. Uh, there's a comedian who has a bit. Maybe we'll do it tomorrow on how women and men, how how his wife versus himself shops, and that kind of gets at the diagram that. Sarah shared, which I also reposted on LinkedIn. I also posted a survey, which is at the bottom of this. Okay. Um, but so there may be a hidden nugget of truth. Not do women shop differently than men, but maybe it's do power shoppers shop differently than item shoppers? And I think this has been proven to be true. The tricky part is, is that it's not necessarily gender. In other words, right now, I've taken up watercolors. I've never really painted with watercolors since, you know, I was a little kid in grade school with the tempera paints and, you know, blah, blah. But um, I grew up with oil and then moved to acrylic. And now um, my friends at Daniel Smith, who make paint, artistic paint, don't make acrylic anymore. So... And oil is a lot of putts. So I've taken up watercolor with their help. And I'm shopping for brushes. They don't do brushes anymore either. I should have made this transition back 10 years ago when we were working together. I would have had a a better support network for all the other accoutrements of watercolor art. Uh, And so I'm learning a lot. I'm watching, I watched, I don't know, a half a dozen at least YouTube tutorials last night, probably each night. And I'm, you know, going on Amazon and looking for brushes. And then I go over to Windsor Newton or, or Dick Blick or somebody who was the enemy back then. Uh, but now they're, now they're uh, a reseller of Daniel Smith art supplies. So anyway, I'm shopping with very great interest and, there's so many options, I have no idea what I'm doing, and so I buy inexpensive stuff and and see what I don't like, and then I go on and you know I'm gradually getting finding finding better better recommendations. But my favorite tutorial tutorial is a woman who cuts up credit cards and uses that to paint with. She uses brushes also. She uses sponges. She uses saran wrap. She she uses. She said, I teach a lot of beginners and they don't want to spend very much money, which is true, right? Which is true. So anyway, uh, all that, oh my goodness, we're off whack today. So the, tr- the truth is, if I'm buying a part for my motorcycle, I'm buying a part for my motorcycle. I bought a belt for my acoustic research turntable, a classic from the 70s, which is one of the best turntables ever ever made uh, for records, if you know what a record is. LP, vinyl. Anyway, (laughs) what a Luddite. Well, it hasn't worked for years. But anyway, I finally got the right part number. And that's an item shop, right? And oftentimes, if I'm going to a big box store, I'm going for an item. I try to focus as much as possible, even at the Piggly Wiggly. I try to go in for what I want, and I do always get something different. It's never 100%. But it 
is as much item shopping as I can as I can muster, and I don't know where most things are, so I ask people, and you know, I get what I need, um, and get out, as she says, get what they came for, and get out. And she brightly says that that online shopping is still designed for item shoppers. Right? I remember Gurney Seed and Nursery, their first website was just a, an order form that you could put in the part numbers you wanted. <laughs> now, from the very beginning, you know, I built my first website in, in uh, Memorial Day, over Memorial Day weekend in 1995. So I've been building websites a long time, and I wrote about how the idea of a website you know, a, a spider's web, you can take multiple routes to the center or to the edges, right? You can go in probably an infinite number of routes uh, going from the perimeter of a spider web to the center. And so theoretically, we could design websites with multiple uh, routes to a, an, a product, depending on how a shopper thinks. So in the early days of Land's End, they had their website they had the capability on the website of putting in your sizes, you know, male, medium shirt, and I don't know what, you know, 34 waist or whatever. And um, you could you could you could find all the items that they had on sale at the same time and look at them by by size and sale price and the fact that they were on sale. They took that away after a, a year or two. I thought that was the because I like sale items. You know, I thought that was one of the best things I'd ever seen. Because now when you go on their site and look at sale items and you click on them, inevitably the color that you want isn't offered or the size that you want isn't offered. It's a big, huge waste of time, right? It's, it's hilarious uh, that they, their early attempts were much better than their, than their current attempts. And, you know, I think we've just given up. As Sarah rightly points out, uh, my wife shops online. She hates online shopping, first of all. Uh, she'd rather drive around all day <laughs> and see what she wants and see whether it's there or not than spend a lot of time finding an item she likes and then finding out it's not available or it was available yesterday, but it's not available today. And um, there's something ethereal about that. that just it's, it's vapor. <laughs> Okay, so um, is it odd that after 40 years, the online shopping experience is still designed for item shoppers? No, it's because operations is in charge of the website, the IT department, who are procedural, and they can't even think in ways that a power shopper thinks. They can't conceive of it. And if the marketing people try to explain it to them, they can't conceive of how they could possibly build it. So Sarah has done us all a favor and shown us how you can redesign a website to make it more fun, to make it work more like a, re a real shopping experience. Um, she, she rightly points out that, that power shoppers will try to put endless tabs up. She has ways to put items, different items onto a board and then you can see them from different views and you can see expanded information. That's another thing that the web should do, should give us more information, but typically it gives us less information than shopping at retail because you can try it on. Okay, so the process of searching, sorting, trying, imagining, curating, selecting, and buying, there's a lot of brain engagement if you could 
if you could mimic power shoppers. They like browsing. They want to have fun doing it. Uh, have you ever heard of retail therapy? It's for humans who like looking at things they might buy. Power shoppers love browsing. But, you know, then you close the, the wrong tab and all of a sudden you can't remember where it was, which store it was in. And that's another problem is that power shoppers like to shop across stores, right? Hence malls, right? But there aren't enough power shoppers probably. Power shoppers will create lots of open tabs with each one, one with each item they're interested in. Yeah, and then the, and then the computer crashes and you lose it all. It's in your history, maybe. Um, so you can add the Styliquin app. I recommend that you look it over. Um, but while I was at it, we <laughs> I put up a survey to help Sarah. Do men versus women shop differently? Is this question sexist, sexy, or good marketing practice? And thankfully, I got lots of responses. And 92% said, it's good marketing practices to at least ask the question, do men shop differently than women? The tricky part is, is your, is your, um, is your store more of an experience, a shopping experience? Pier 1 got in a lot of trouble because they tried to attract people who wanted orderly shopping. <laughs> And uh, I talked with a psychologist about this who helped them save it. And, and what they did was put in the, 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 the runway around the store. You know how if you go to Target or something, you'll, there's a pe big path that goes around the store like that. It gives you an order because most people are procedural, more procedural, and it gives them a, a guide. Um, Pier 1 did an ad campaign, and they got lots of traffic. And they had a headline, a picture, and a you know, body copy. And they got all the procedural people to come because that's the way an ad should look. Before that, they had done these weird garage sale type ads. <laughs> and the people who came would wander around and liked wandering around. Uh, but, you know, when they interviewed the procedural people, they came out and they said, you know, they have, a, they have the same item way over there and then way over here. What kind of a store is this? <laughs> right? So you have to figure out if you're... If you're shopping, if your main shoppers are procedural or they are opportunistic, that's another way to look at this. And Styliquin is for opportunistic shoppers who like to look for the opportunity. What what can I find? You know, my my mother used to go to the thrift shops and Goodwill and find all sorts of treasures. And some of my daughters do that and some of them don't. <laughs> and my wife is always frustrated because she's very procedural. So... Uh, What's the point? The point is, ask the question. It's not necessarily male-female. And it's not even necessarily one person versus another. So I shop procedurally for most things, and I shop opportunistically for new things, for things I don't know that much about, for things I want to learn about. You see how complicated this can be? So that's why we test. We test, and we hopefully give shoppers the opportunity to play both games at the same time on the same website. And that's what I think Styliquin does. Have a great day. Like and share. Your friends will know you're smart.